Well, a warm welcome to the Biz News Power Hour this uh, Wednesday, the 12th of January. It has been an extraordinarily rapid start to the new year. We've only really been back in office here uh, since Monday, and my goodness, we're off to a flying start. You might remember in the November elections last year, one of the biggest shocks was the victory by the Democratic Alliance in the municipality of Mgeni, where two-thirds of the voters are Zulu-speaking. This was where a young white fellow by the age of th- at the age of 30, Christopher Pappas, it has taken over as the mayor with the Democratic Alliance getting 13 out of the 25 seats in that municipality. Uh, if you think of a map of KwaZulu-Natal, it's where you would find Howick, which is where the municipal offices are, Hilton, uh, Nottingham Road, right in the middle, in the center part of the KZN Midlands. I've been trying to get hold of uh, Chris Pappas for a while towards the end of last year. He was just too busy. He couldn't actually talk to us. But I did manage to track him down this week, and we'll be hearing that interview in just a little while, or at least uh, uh, a slug of it. The whole interview goes for about half an hour, but we'll give you the highlights package on, or the highlights part of it on the program in a Uh, coming up towards the end of the show today. If you want to listen to the full 30 minutes, and as I said last night, just Google Biz News Radio and you'll pick it up on Spotify or on iTunes. Also tonight is an interview that I did earlier today with Dave Woolham. Now, Dave Woolham used to be the financial director of African Bank. Uh, He's a chartered accountant, highly respected person in the financial sector. Dave actually left African Bank quite some time before all the problems occurred there. And he has been keeping a very close eye on what's going on at Tongot. And in many ways is the whistleblower on Tongot. What he found from looking at the accounts was that something really strange was going on there. He then took that to the board of directors of Tongot, explained his concerns. The directors poo-pooed him. And of course, It wasn't long afterwards that the whole issue, the whole company imploded. So he's very much a go-to guy when it's anything to do with Tongot. And he is at the moment rather unhappy at the way that affairs are being developed or are developing at Tongot. Uh, We had a statement coming out yesterday. We had the interim results coming out just before Christmas. And Tongot's share price, which had already collapsed, to around the 10 rand level is now halved from that level as a Zimbabwean family who are not known to know a heck of a lot about sugar are about to take control by actually or effectively uh, diluting the existing shareholders that are still there uh, to a almost negligible level. So they're picking up the business, it appears, on the cheap. But more of that from Dave Woolham a little later. Also in the program tonight, we'll be hearing about Dr. Richard Smith. Now, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts uh, had an interview with Dr. Smith earlier. He's, of course, based in the United States. We've had him on the show before, Justin. Always great value. What did you guys pick up on this time? Alec, there seems to be an element of fear in the U.S., so it's great to get someone on the ground in uh, there. It's tough to look from the outside in and engage what's happening. But with a lot of the growth and the tech names coming off a bit, me and Dr. Smith really delve into that in great detail. We chat ar- around the interest rate cycle, 
and the inflation problems, uh, with particular focus on U.S. equities. But we also do take a step back into the JSC, something that Dr. Smith does focus on, and he has high prospects for the local bots, which is really exciting. That's interesting. We're getting more and more feedback now from experts who are saying that the South African shares could actually have a good year ahead of them. Exactly. And when these uh, US-based investors that have the whole capital markets to invest in choose South Africa as an investment destination, I think that's when we start getting excited. And I can't wait to chat to Pit Fulian already tomorrow, first uh, interview of the year with him. Indeed. Uh, Pit is a huge favorite amongst the business community. And just to remind you that he will be at the Biz News Conference, which will be held and from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's only six weeks away. If you want to come along to the conference or indeed want to find out more about it, go on to biznews.com. You'll see in the top right-hand uh, side of the home page uh, is, a, is a picture about the Biz News Conference. If you click on that, it'll give you all the details. There'll be an investment masterclass with Pete Fillion and David Shapiro. There'll also be some... Uh, heavy hitters that you you know well, like Helen Ziller, who's actually opening the conference for us, and she'll be giving some insights from her side. It really is a, what's the best yet? It's the, the third conference that we're having. And if you are able to get to the Berg from the 1st to the 4th of March, I'm sure you will certainly not uh, regret it. Okay, we're going to be talking in a little while as well with uh, our colleague Michael Apple about probably the most interesting story I've come across or I've heard yet uh, on the Zondo Commission or on the first Zondo Commission report. We'll get that in just a moment. But first, let's pick up on the markets. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart has got the news headlines. Nadia? With the end of the fourth wave of COVID-19 on the horizon in South Africa and the end of the current national state of disaster due in a few days, scientists and politicians have made calls for President Sol Ramaphosa to allow it to lapse as it is no longer considered necessary and undermines democracy. Shabir Mahdi, the Dean of the University of Edvard Faculty of Health Sciences and Professor of Vaccinology, has said that there is no reason to renew the state of disaster. He says that the country has effectively lifted all restrictions and that it now needs to work on rebuilding the economy. Mahdi furthermore said that the National Coronavirus Command Council also needs greater oversight. On the other hand, Acting Deputy Director General of the Health Department, Nicholas Crisp, said that the national state of disaster is still needed to give effect to standing lockdown restrictions like the public mask mandate. Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe said that there's no need for his department to review the decision granting shell exploration rights on the wild coast because it has already deemed the gas and oil exploration activities would not have a detrimental impact on the environment. The minister's comments are in contrast to the High Court ruling which found evidence that the seismic survey would irreparably harm marine life. Communities on the wild coast rallied and launched a court bid for an urgent interdict against Shell's activities. Montage said the project was being oppressed over environmental concerns that have low significance. And the government has distanced itself from Tourism Minister Lindiwe Suzulu's reckless tirade against South Africa's constitution, where she suggested that it has done nothing but keep the masses in poverty. 
in her rant, Suzulu, who has been a part of the ruling government since it was voted into power in 1994, said the constitution gave rise to a sea of poverty and didn't do enough for transformation and economic reconciliation. The opinion piece was widely panned, saying the points raised were a result of a failure of government and not the constitution. Justin, back to you for the market report. The JSUL share index was up at 75,500. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 45 cents to the dollar, 21 rand and 9 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 57 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,819 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back approximately 30,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $84 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading around the 670,000 rand per coin mark. In the financial news, Capitec Bank co-founder and CFO Andre Duplessis will retire in June after 22 years with the banking group that is widely credited for revolutionizing the retail banking space in South Africa. In a statement on Wednesday, Capitec said, Capitec said Duplessis will be replaced by Grant Hardy, who heads the group's service, group financial services. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thanks, Justin and Nadia. Well, in studio with us now is Michael Apple, uh, who has published a story on Biz News that is getting quite a lot of interest and a lot of traction from our community, Michael, about a a fellow called Nzeku, and you can t- give us his full name. He was the director of Swissport here in South Africa. Uh, you've been doing some digging into uh, volume one of the Zondo Commission. Yes, that's right. Um, actually, his full name, and it'll become relevant, you'll see why, Sipo Vuyo Aron Nzeku. So Vuyo or Vuyo Sile Nzeku is what he became known as at the State Capture Inquiry. Honestly, one of my absolute favorite, most colorful characters to come out of the State Capture Inquiry in my top three uh, for having covered. And he is this weird, wacky, sunglasses-wearing, indoors businessman who, from face value, got into the aviation industry, didn't know all that much about it, but had a lot of good connections, seemed to be tied to Dudu Mayeni and the executive there and Yake Quinana and the SAA technical side. And then just happened to be right place, right time. He was a director at Swissport and was also a director in a local company, JM Aviation. So I looked at the period between, say, 2011 up to 2016, 2017, where billions of, of rands would flow to Swissport and JM Aviation in, let's say, three different tenders. And it was, <laughs> it was here where we came across a, a ground handling tender where JM Aviation would receive a particular cut. Uh, Swissport had to, uh, as part of SAA's 30% BE set-aside rule, had to partner with a local partner. They chose JM Aviation, but he never disclosed, this is in Zeku, never disclosed to Swissport that he sat as a director on the very company that they were partnering with. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. And Swissport is a, is a huge multinational, the biggest in its field in this area. You wonder how they picked a guy like Nzeku, given uh, the I wear my sunglasses in the day, etc. approach that he, he showed in public at the Zondo Commission. 
he would be, have been their public face or at least one of their faces here in South Africa. It's, it's quite astonishing how this man rose to the level in companies that he did. So I, I will tell you that um, the Swiss board narrative is quite different to his. Uh, and they have come out to say that, look, we're going to work with law enforcement and going to cooperate as much as, as, as we can. We have read the report in relation to ourselves and we are going to cooperate. They did actually respond to Biz News yesterday saying that. Um, but as for the character of the man, if you take us back to 1992, he's sentenced to nine years in prison on drug-related charges. Uh, so he was a drug mule of sorts. He only ends up spending 83 days out of a three-year sentence. It was a nine-year sentence uh, reduced on appeal to three years. He spends 83 days, which is a lot more than our former president uh, did when he was in jail for, for well, completely separate reasons. But it's a very, very short stint uh, behind bars. And then he makes his way into the business world and rises to the highest echelons within Swiss sport and local aviation. How did Swissport not do their due diligence on a criminal? Because clearly he was a criminal. He went to jail. He had a record. It just sounds it beggars belief. Uh, perhaps the multinationals believe that they need to put connections, political connections, or hopefully believed and in the past, over any kind of integrity. Yeah, there, there has to be due diligence. And, and this is where the name issue comes up. If you, if you Google Vujasile and Seko, it brings up his state capture stuff. It doesn't bring up his, his conviction on drug-related charges. When he was before the court there, he was under Sipo Nzeku. So it, you can pick and choose which name, and um, you know that, that changes what's going to come up on the Google machine. Indeed. Well, Justin, these stories that are coming out time and time again are, are really baffling when you consider all of the regulations that there are for a JSE listed company. You know, at, at one stage, I used to serve on the board of Pumalela, the uh, horse racing gambling business, which is, of course went bust a long time after I left there. But Pumalela, to get on the board, you had to go through the gambling board. And I can tell you that the, the probity that had to be filled in, was almost a, uh, a war and peace size uh, documentation. It took hours and hours to put that through. And yet here you have a situation where some guy is sitting on a multinational corporation's board in the local subsidiary, admittedly, and can just get on even with a criminal record. It just beggars belief, doesn't it? It's crazy, Alec. I could only imagine listing MoneyWeb, the amount of red tape and regulatory burden that must have been going through that process and your other board endeavors on the JSC. I know in my last gig, I was in corporate finance and I um, did some regulatory work with the JSC. They are really stringent, one of the most stringent in the world. If you go across all the exchanges, we've got calls from guys like Pete Mouton to lower the regulation in order just to make business easier. And if I just take uh, this uh, example with Swissport, all we have to do is look back at a rational mind, Stephen Nation, what Stephen Nathan said yesterday, and a few people and institutions are holding this country back. We've got so much untapped potential, yet um, situations like this are holding us back and not, not allowing us um, this country to thrive. It is interesting, uh, especially when you get all the rules, the best rules in the world, and I guess it's a lot like the South African uh, laws that we have in our constitution, so many good things, but you'll stand, you'll sit at a, a, a traffic light and 
here in Johannesburg at least anyway, they're just a suggestion for many drivers. They don't really mm. mean you have to stop there. Mike, you say he was one of your most colourful characters. Uh, why so? It, it comes down to the fact that he didn't give a damn that he couldn't remember anything or claims he couldn't remember anything. And it was that exuberant arrogance that it's okay for me to say I don't remember receiving 2.5 million rand in my bank account. I hope to be that wealthy one day that I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, notice that sort of number of zeros popping into my bank account. But that seemed to be, sta- to be his standard response because he was also asked something about when he was married. Yes, yeah, no. So, so he, it, it, was, it was his inability to answer the most basic questions. And you know what? If you've been, if you've been sitting listening to a, a commission of inquiry day in and day out and you get the most dreadful characters that come through there, he was just one of the more colorful ones. And he, it was, it was, he was caught, he was found to lack integrity, and he didn't give a damn. And there was something refreshing about that sort of level well, of honesty. Comic relief, I guess, yes. uh, if you're going through such, a, such a, a dreadful period in South Africa's history. So what's going to happen to this fellow? So the Zondo uh, report has said that the National Prosecuting Authority must get their ducks in a row and they recommend that he, along with a whole cast of characters, uh, will or should be investigated for corruption and Swissport should be looked at in particular to see that if they facilitated any of the the payments to particular SAA officials through JM Aviation, if they made those payments with the express knowledge of what it would be used for, they too should be investigated for corruption. The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Biz News Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the biznews.com homepage. See you there. Today is Wednesday, January 12th, and this is your FT News Briefing. U.S. regulators now have a green light to try and break up Facebook. The latest U.S. inflation numbers are out today. Plus, the Federal Reserve has a nearly $9 trillion balance sheet. It's from the giant bond-buying strategy it used to prop up the economy during the pandemic. This isn't like trying to skip rocks on a lake, right? Like this is, They have thrown boulders into this lake to get the water level up. We'll take a look at how the U.S. Central Bank will remove the stimulus program without churning the economic waters. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. A U.S. federal judge yesterday allowed an antitrust case against Facebook to proceed. U.S. regulators have been attempting to sue the social media site. The same judge dismissed the government's lawsuit last year. It said the Federal Trade Commission didn't have enough facts to show that Facebook, now called Meta, has monopoly power. The FTC has provided more evidence to make its argument that Meta has a stranglehold on the social network market because it owns WhatsApp and Instagram. It wants to force Meta to unwind the acquisitions of those two apps. Meta has until January 25th to respond.
Tech stocks made a bit of a comeback yesterday. The Nasdaq was up nearly 1.5%, this after a sharp downward spiral. Investors seem to have been heartened by comments made by Fed Chair Jay Powell. He was on Capitol Hill yesterday for his renomination hearing and told lawmakers he would get a handle on inflation. We will use our tools to support the economy and a strong labor market and to prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched. We'll see the latest U.S. inflation report this morning. Consumer prices for December are expected to show a 7% year-on-year rise. But our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith, says on a month-to-month basis, price gains are expected to level out. So you're going to see the CPI potentially rise just 0.4% between November and December, as opposed to 0.8% in the previous period. These are still uh, really substantial month-over-month increases. And I think that, yes, it's encouraging to see uh, a slight moderation there, but it doesn't necessarily change the broader narrative that inflation is something that policymakers need to be paying quite a lot of attention to. So, Colby, when the inflation report comes out, what are you looking for and what are analysts going to be looking at in particular? I think what everyone is paying most attention to is if we're going to see further evidence that inflation is picking up in uh, a broader swath of the economy here. That's something that's uh, really been the highlight of most recent inflation reports is that we're really seeing price gains in a number of sectors and beyond those that were just kind of most impacted by supply chain issues and pandemic-related distortions like we saw uh, earlier in 2021. I think what people are going to be paying a lot of attention to is if we're seeing it specifically in um, service-related sectors, which could mean that, you know, some of the wage increases that employers have had to give uh, to their workers, uh, if those are filtering into higher prices for everyday Americans. So on Monday, Colby, uh, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida resigned three weeks before his term ended because of a trading scandal. He's now the third Fed official in the past few months to resign because of trades made around the loose monetary policy the Fed introduced back in 2020. Did Powell have anything to say about that? Powell faced uh, a couple of questions on the ethics scandal at the Fed. Um, I think more than as, uh, more than anything else, uh, policymakers uh, wanted to ensure that the new rules that the Fed rolled out in October change exactly uh, what Fed officials can trade and when they can do so. And uh, I think policymakers just want to know that those rules are being put into place soon and that the Fed is is really taking this situation seriously because uh, there are quite a lot of questions about what it all means for the Fed's credibility here um, when, you know, three of its top officials have resigned in recent months over uh, their trading activity. It's our U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. So we've been talking a lot about the Fed's plans to scale back its asset purchase program. And we want to dig into that a little bit now because it's really a big deal. We're talking about all the bond buying that the Fed's been doing since the pandemic started in order to keep the economy afloat. This isn't like um, trying to skip rocks on a lake, right? Like this is They have thrown boulders into this lake to get the water level up. But the FT's U.S. markets editor, Eric Platt, says that those boulders... Trillions of dollars in government bonds and other assets has completely distorted global financial markets. So the Fed having such a large footprint on global financial markets really takes away 
the signals investors, economists, everyone gets from the bond market. What does it mean when you have a price-insensitive buyer hoovering up debt? They will pay, when they were doing this, really any price for the bonds. It doesn't matter. And then when you take a step back, it's not just the Fed doing this, right? It's the European Central Bank. It was the Bank of England. You had global central banks across the world turning to these policies. And that had an effect of pushing up stock prices, prices of corporate bonds across the world. But now that the economy's doing okay and we have this inflation problem, the Fed wants to shrink this abnormally big balance sheet, you know, withdraw the stimulus, try to get back to normal. Um, Eric, are, are investors eager for this? Yeah, I think when I when we speak to investors, they would love to see a world with less distortion. I have to really quickly caveat that, though. It has been in their best interest for the Fed to be in these markets because it supported asset prices. So when the Fed was buying treasuries at any price, if you held treasuries, uh, th- that was great for you, right? The, the price of treasuries was rising. You have to wonder, like, you know, how far... And how long can the Fed do this? And does the Fed risk credibility issues? Does it risk political issues if it's leaving a mark on markets for too long? And that's why you're seeing calls for the Fed to start backing away because people don't think, you know, this bond buying program really is necessary given the recovery we've seen in both the economy and the labor market. Okay, let's move to the nitty gritty of of actually selling these bonds and, and shrinking its abnormally colossal balance sheet. What is the strategy and what are the considerations, you know, from what you can tell so far? So the Fed has to decide how much of an impact it wants to have on financial markets and financial conditions and, you know, what it's willing to tolerate in terms of market volatility as it starts to unload these assets. Let's say the Fed were to tighten too quickly, start selling off bonds too rapidly, financial markets get spooked, the S&P 500 drops 10, 20% in a short time frame, right? Suddenly, if you're a corporate treasurer, you're thinking, oh, do we really want to be spending money right now? You start to see confidence come back where consumers say, uh, do I need to buy that sweater or should I be putting that offer on that home right now? And so in thinking of that, what will the Fed do? The Fed doesn't have to actually sell them. It can just allow the treasuries that it's purchased, the bills and bonds to mature. And in doing so, the size of its balance sheet will begin to decline. If the Fed wants to be more aggressive, it can actively start to sell those securities, which means maybe if it's holding, let's say, a treasury note that would mature in a year, if instead the Fed decides to sell it now, it's going to have a faster impact in terms of tightening and greater impact in terms of market reaction, because then you have an active seller in the market. Eric Platt is the FT's U.S. markets editor. Before we go, the hot new accessory this winter, at least in the UK, is the hot water bottle. Remember those humble rubber pouches that mom would slip under the blanket to heat up the sheets on a cold winter night? I don't, because it's kind of a British thing. But anyway, upscale retailers have made rubber heater covers into a must-have fashion item. They're making covers of cashmere or Belgian linen. I didn't even know that was a thing. There's even a sequin embellished velvet hot water bottle cover selling for 365 pounds, bottle not included. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
Dave Willem, our go-to man when it comes to Tongat. Sure, Dave, just uh, by way of background for those who haven't been following the Tongat story that closely, you were the whistleblower uh, some years ago when you uh, did your analysis as a chartered accountant, did your analysis of the company and uh, went to the board of directors and said, something's going wrong here. Yeah, it, it, I guess whistleblower, uh, analyst, uh, I researched the company, um, unfortunately didn't see, I, I saw some stuff that was really concerning at an accounting level. Um, the, the numbers didn't make sense. In a nutshell, what was happening is that expenses, cash that was being spent was being capitalized. So that made the profits look better. But assets, unless they can be realized into cash, are not assets. And so eventually the problem started to mount and mount. And eventually with an enormous amount of debt, assets that weren't really assets, income that had, or profits that had not really been profits and dividends paid and, and obviously executives rewarded, it all came crumbling down, which is a, a real tragedy for a company that's over 100 years old. So what about the former executive, Peter Stauder and, and his team? Is it likely, in your opinion, that there will be a day of reckoning in the courts? Well, the, the, I think the justice process has to follow. Um, I mean, it's very hard. I think it's dangerous to judge things from, uh, you know, outside the courts. But from what I've seen, is, is, was he guilty and was his direct management team guilty of falsifying the numbers knowingly and willingly? I've got no doubt about that. And I guess I'm putting my neck on the line, but I have no doubt that the numbers were falsified. Did they misrepresent the assets and the profits of the company, no doubt. What were their motives? Well, time will tell. Um, but I have no doubt about that. However, I would say this went on for nearly eight years. And this is, as, as one of my colleagues says, this was a, a, a first year, like a grade one fraud. This is not like Steinoff that was highly sophisticated, took incredibly smart people all around the world to do it. This was elementary grade one fraud falsifying the balance sheet. The auditors did not pick this up for eight years. And I, I really question why are the auditors still not being held account? You know, they, the industry earns hundreds of billions in, in audit fees and directors earn billions and billions in directors fees and, and all the rest. And, you know, I don't feel great about my alumni being sued, but I do feel great about the robustness of the audit assurance industry being held to account. Otherwise, why are we paying for it? And, and that figure of $450 million that is being thrown around as a civil suit against the former uh, executives, how's that compiled or how's that brought, uh, brought into, the, into the picture? I think it's a, I think if I was a little bit cynical, the timing of it was a bit interesting because there was a somewhat hard-hitting article put out yesterday by Tim uh, Cohen um, and he and the sort of this announcement came out later in the day. So I, I don't know. I'll be honest. I'm a bit of a cynic on that. Uh, we know. I know because I have the register, the share register. Peter Stardy actually kept nearly all his shares. Uh, in fact, he kept all his shares. So all the profits and the bonuses he converted into shares fell 95. percent So he's got a 400 odd thousand shares that are worth about two million rand. That's that's his you know, 70 million dropped to 2 million gone, unfortunately. Well, um, yeah, for anybody trying to reclaim. So they say they've got his pension. I'm not sure how that works. I think they're blowing hot air on that one. You know, the auditors are the people that got paid enormous money 
to provide assurance. And for eight years, they did not pick up these very basic, simple frauds. I think they should be, I, I don't understand why they've not yet engaged. And they say because they're trying to finalize the statutory audit. That to me is a conflict of interest. If you have a claim against somebody, it is your responsibility to, you don't delay um, arresting someone because they're taking your kid to school or because they're doing something that's important for you. If they're guilty of something, you arrest them, you charge them, or you bring action against them. And the consequences are sometimes uncomfortable. And that is unfortunately life. It's sometimes on a board, you've got to do uncomfortable things. So had I been on this board, I would not have accepted that. I would have pushed hard. Because whether they're guilty or not, just bring them to book because shareholders are losing now. And pretty much they're going to be diluted by probably an amount similar to what could be claimed from Deloitte given the circumstances. We had Tongart in our portfolio, in the business portfolio, for a period of time. Then came the Natal, uh, KwaZulu-Natal riots. Straight after that, uh, I took a view that, whoa, the, uh, the property values in KZN are going to take a heck of a long time to recover. I know you from the province, as I am as well, and, uh, and we, we won't go down that line, but it, it, it was a view that we took at the time, and as it happens, has been rather fortuitous. But it, is there any value being ascribed by the new controlling shareholders or the Zimbabwean family that are coming in to take control of Tonga to all that land on the KZN North Coast? Remember, the price hasn't been set. So, I mean, what they put as value, I mean, that's what concerns me about this vote next week is that they are asking shareholders to authorize five, three, nearly five billion new shares, million new shares, sorry, sorry, billion. And the 135 million shares. So it's a 33 times increase in authorized share capital. Once that vote goes through, there's absolutely nothing stopping the board from setting the rice issue price at 50%, 60% below. There's no legal basis to stop them. Um, they could set it at where they like. And they say they'll set it in conjunction with the underwriters. And so they, they kind of can set the price. And that concerns me uh, from a governance point of view. Not, not Rudlitz, it's the board. Why are the board being so coy? about asking for a checkbook and we'll tell you the amount later. I think that's very concerning to me, especially given this is not a one-for-one one rights issue. It's like an eight, seven or eight-for-one. So on the land property, land, yeah, the land is very valuable. There's no doubt. Uh, how valuable is a question of how long you want to wait? Um, I took a drive a week and a half ago up that area, and yeah, there's some really good development going on around Sabaya. And, but most of that's been, that was land sold before. So that's not Tongot's benefit. There's a lot of land, but it's going to take a long, long, long time. And, and I just use very simple numbers um, per 100 hectares, which is about an annual kind of bite that they can do. You get about 7 million probably per hectare, um, about 3 million of establishment costs. So there's about 400 million a year to be made from that property over the next, say, 20 years. But that doesn't come to a PV of $8 billion. That's maybe a nominal value of $8 billion. So if I put a PV value to that, I'm probably seeing maybe $4 billion. But even that is like a big, there's a lot of factors. But it's worth a lot of money. And I guess it will be realized by somebody at some point. And the Rudlands, a Zimbabwean family, clearly they would have a good feel for the Zimbabwean assets of Tongat. And perhaps that's what's appealing to this family, what do you know about them? You, see, you haven't you haven't spoken with them, and they they do appear to be very low profile. Alec, yeah, I haven't spoken to them directly. I don't think that would be appropriate. Um, 
I obviously have done my I've done my research, and as have a number of people. Um, there have been some reports issued. Um, Tongas say they did a detailed due diligence. They asked PwC to do that. Um, I'm not so much concerned about the Rudlands, as I said, for me to judge them. I do question, I mean, this is not a family that has an obvious source of its wealth other than what we read about. So it's not like, you know, PSG where you can say, well, yes, we know Yanni Mutani's got a 30-year track record. We know what he does or, or Remgro. I mean, these types of organizations that have got deep, deep histories. This is an organization that's come out of the blue. It's a foreign entity. It's got some questions around where it got its money and how it's made its money. They made a claim about their agri-processing. I happen to go to those two companies that they referenced. The wine is insignificantly small. It's got a balance sheet of about $10 million and made losses. The other one uh, looks like it's been making very big losses and, in fact, was suspended for some time, just been unsuspended and made significant losses in the last two years. So these are not agri-processing companies. They are little bets that they've taken. They are a logistics business and a cigarette business. And that's what they do. Now, I don't know what that does in terms of strategic input to the group. I What my concern is that there hasn't been a transparent engagement. We've never seen these people. They haven't really sold. You know, if a big, if a Remgro was coming in, I think you'd hear the leadership of Remgro saying, well, this is what we can bring. This is what we're going to add as a reference, a shield of reference. Uh, this has got socioeconomic importance, I think, this industry. employs a lot of people, 20,000 farmers who are very indebted to the banks and the economic prospects of an entire coastal region. And we, we're kind of accepting a, a takeover without going to the TRP, without going to competition properly, or they're trying to get waivers for that stuff. I just don't think it's good governance. And that's what I'm questioning. Dr. Richard Smith, Chairman for the Study of Cycles. What a pleasure and compliments of the season. Richard, there's been so much happening since we last spoke a few months ago, particularly in the U.S. market. A more hawkish Fed, key economic indicators flashing red. It's difficult to gauge the environment from the outside in, but there seems to be an element of fear. What's the general sentiment on the ground in the States at the moment regarding the health of equity markets? I think people who are looking at it deeply definitely have some concerns. And I think the biggest concerns have to do with kind of the trajectory of inflation and long-term interest rates. And certainly from the perspective of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, we see a lot of indications that we are at a major cycle bottom in terms of yields on long-term interest rates. And we definitely expect yields to rise and, um, you know, that has been the major trend for the past 40 to 50 years, frankly. Um, and, you know, we've expected them to rise earlier, too, as a lot of people have. Um, I was looking at a quote, actually, from Alan Greenspan in 2005, saying it's kind of a conundrum why long-term interest rates aren't rising, right? But I do think that we are at a turning point I do think that inflation is picking up and I think that it's here to stay and long-term rates are rising, but, you know, we also have to think about um, real yields, namely, you know, what you're earning in interest on long-term bonds versus uh, what inflation is, right? And those are negative. 
I suspect they're going to stay negative. I think that you know both inflation and long-term rates are going to rise. And I think that the reason they're going to stay negative is basically because the government is and the Federal Reserve are pursuing a policy of what's called financial repression. You know, it's a uh, which means they're kind of uh, using the private sector to help pay off their own debts, right? So the biggest, one of the biggest debtors is the U.S. government. And if that um, ability to service the debt of the U.S. government, you know, becomes problematic, uh, they can't afford it. So meanwhile, the partnership between the government and the Federal Reserve, they've got some tools to help make sure that the government can pay its debts. <laughs> and I think we're going to continue to see that. But I think that rates and inflation will rise. I just think that inflation will outpace the rise in rates and you'll still have these negative uh, real yields. And that's, you know, that's a serious thing for investors. When the U.S. sneezes, the rest of global markets tend to catch a cold. Our local mm -hmm. market has held up really well considering what's happened in the States, predominantly because of the value bias in the stocks on the JSE. Mm -hmm. Is this inflation shock imminent interest rate cycle that you talk about negative for solely growth companies or are there broader implications for the market? Well, I think it's definitely negative for growth companies. And, you know, let's face it, growth has been the story of the past decade. Um, so I do think value is will be more attractive than growth in the uh, over the year of 2022, for sure. Um, you know, look, I think that inflation you know, can be good for equities, right? Especially companies that can price their, raise their prices. So, you know, inflation means you don't want to leave your money in the bank, right? We're not getting to the point that savers are going to be, you know, giddy. People are still going to need a place to put their money where it can grow. And so I do think that favors equities to some degree and value equities in particular, and, you know, even emerging markets. So, I think that uh, South Africa isn't in a bad spot. And, and I, by the way, I commend South Africa on your you know, management of Omicron and alerting the world. And I think you guys have earned some cred over the past uh, few months. You know, good, good work. We've seen the high growth emerging tech basket absolutely hammered in 2021. These are the same yeah. stocks that were multi-baggers in 2020, I see a lot of investors price anchoring some of these growth stocks to their all-time highs. Are yeah. stocks objectively cheap simply because they're a percentage of their all-time highs alone, i.e. a company like Peloton is 70% off its all-time highs? This, it must be cheap. Or would that be incorrect? That's absolutely incorrect. You know, nothing's cheap that can get cheaper, right? <laughs> the, uh, what is it? Somebody said, uh, you know, what's the difference between... Uh, 80% loss and a 90% loss. I'm not quoting it exactly. But look, if something gets from, you know, 80% off its high to 90% off its high, that's a 50% fall in the price of the stock. Okay, trust me, right? So that's the mathematics. So look, you know, things can fall more. That's one of the biggest lessons of the markets. You got to be careful about that. Do not look at, you know, prices relative to their all-time highs. No, we have to start thinking about valuations. You know, valuations are at all-time highs, especially in technology and growth. It's pretty incredible. I think the CAPE ratios got updated recently, you know, and in information technology, it's something in the 50s, which is just crazy. 
And, and, but then, you know, globally and in, in it's a uh, much, much less than in the U S so look, something that's down 70% can end up down 80% to 90%. And that for you, if you're buying in, you know, today can mean a 50% drop easily. So can't forget that. That's absolutely something you have to be thinking about. Given the rise and fall and all the hype of these emerging tech names, I've tried to better understand some of the businesses, the likes of Peloton, Roku, Palantir, the C Group, to name a few. Fascinating businesses at the forefront of innovation within their industries. Taking this back to the dot-com bubble, how many of these emerging growth businesses or what percentage come out of the cycle, out of the bear market, successful long-term businesses? Uh, A lot less than we would hope. So I think a lot of what goes on in the markets too is narrative driven and herd type of mentality, right? So, you know, something like Peloton going up to astronomical heights during the pandemic, you know, was really even part of the meme stock story. You could even call Peloton a meme stock to some degree. Look, it's not GameStop or AMC. They've actually got revenues, you know, in a real business. But um, but look, there's been a lot of narrative driving the markets over the pandemic, partly because a lot more people were interested in markets and we were all glued to our screens, right? So um, those narratives can, you know, sink uh, stocks as much as they can lift stocks. And I think that we have to be careful about all stocks that really were driven a lot by narrative during the pandemic and not by fundamentals. Is this time different to the dot-com bubble? I see a lot of bulls saying that this time is different and we're ready to embrace this technology-driven economy 20 years later. I don't think that this time is different. Uh, I think that you're going to have a lot of people who got involved in the markets in 2021 and who know nothing but gains are going to uh, start to understand the pains (laughs) that the markets can deliver. And these market cycles have been going on, you know, for uh, probably as long as there have been markets, certainly for as long as we've been able to track markets for the past hundred years or so. So I don't think there is such a thing that this time is different because, look, a lot of market behavior is driven by human behavior and human behavior is certainly not changed. So. These are the kind of traps that, you know, we get ourselves into in markets. And I think that we all have to really be paying attention to these behavioral dynamics of markets and understanding and not, you know, it's, it's also society. I think we have a lot better understanding today of, of behavioral psychology and how behavior drives markets. Most of that understanding, unfortunately, is being leveraged by profit making, you know, institutions that want to manipulate human behavior for, for, you know, corporate profits or government control. Meanwhile, you know, we need to understand our own behavior better. We need to take consider, take that into consideration in terms of how we participate in markets. We need to not let ourselves be just led astray, you know, by the behavioral, you know, manipulations in the media and in markets that really aim to extract uh, money and attention and, um, you know, data from us and be more uh, savvy in that regard. Kathy Wood's arc has been under tremendous pressure for the better part of a year now. 
Her flagship ETF, Ark Innovation, down 50% from its highs last mm. February. She outlined in a presentation recently that Ark is expecting to do 40% per annum for the, at least the next five years. Do you think Kathy's being a little bit optimistic? I think that is optimistic. I'm a fan of Kathy. I think she's got a lot of integrity. I think she's serious about what she's doing. I love her transparency. And I do think that there are some serious technological innovations that are in play. I do think there's something to the kind of theme of centralization versus decentralization. And I think that Kathy has her finger on that pulse. So I wouldn't underestimate her. You know, I'm always about helping people understand the relationship between risk and reward. Okay. So yes, Kathy's down 50%. Her fund could be down another 50% from where it is today, right? And that would only take her down to maybe a 70% <laughs> correction. But when you're investing in something like the ARK ETF, you're swinging for the fences. You're investing in very speculative, you know, venture capital type of investing, basically. And so you have to be prepared for things to go way down if you want something that could potentially go way up. Well, it's taken me a little while to nail down Chris Peppers, the new mayor of Mgeni, a municipality in KwaZulu-Natal. But it is the first Democratic Alliance municipality. And, and Chris, I know your father, Mark Peppers, uh, a farmer in, in the district that, uh, that I lived in for a, a period of time. But I hadn't come across you before. And looking through your pedigree, though, you got into politics pretty early on. And I'll, I'll go back to even... Uh, what you studied, uh, town and regional planning. Now, that's not a very popular choice. What pushed you there? It's actually a funny story. So, and I do apologize for taking so long to meet you. Um, I applied to three universities. I had an argument with my dad um, about whether or not a gap year was an actual thing. Uh, and he said, no, you will go to university. So I applied to three universities, uh, WITS, which was a, a degree in law, University of Cape Town, which was politics, philosophy, and economics, and then uh, University of Pretoria, which was town and regional planning. And the idea was whoever accepted me first, that's where I'd go, and Tix was quickest off the mark. So you could have been a PPE, which is, a, I suppose, a very prestigious degree from UCT, and you went into something which is really public service. Yeah, I mean, uh, growing up as a kid, I, I used to play hours and hours of, uh, there was a computer game called SimCity. Uh, and I used to love playing that, uh, building little towns and little cities and making them work. So it's actually, you know, it le led me in the right direction, I guess. So let's go into the, the reason why you are in the uh, public spotlight. That is the winning of the election for the Mgeni Council, which is the first time the DA has managed to win a council in KwaZulu-Natal. So it's, it's historic from that perspective. You're a young man. Uh, there's so much about this that, that is a first. But looking at it from the position that you were in, in the KZN Provincial Council, so you had quite a good job with a, a big upward trajectory. What made you decide to take on this challenge, which I suppose at the time would have been a bit like what you told us earlier in, in trying to get the whole of uh, south of uh, Itekweni to, to vote for the DA? Um, it's, it's home. Um, this this is where I grew up. So when when you grow up in a place and you see it slowly decline, uh, when you see the people that that you grew up with, and particularly the young black people that I grew up with, where the opportunities are far from the same as mine, 
when you see blatant corruption and mismanagement of, of small things that then lead to, to deeper poverty, deeper suffering, businesses closing, you know, you, someone has to do something about it. You always see on social media, I mean, or the emails that I get, there's it always, it always the last line, someone must do something about it. And I wanted to be that someone. I wanted to be part of, of making things better, no matter how difficult it was. And it's one of the reasons why I moved from the, the administration of a political party to the, the political side of a political party, because even internally um, within the DA, you see things that you, can, you think can work better or, or, or do better. It's a very big organization, like all organizations, and you want to change those things because as politics works better, the country works better. But regardless of how many people are out there saying that politics is the problem, politics is also the solution. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you, you can say I'm not voting for a politician or you're standing as an independent. As soon as you're in the system, you are a politician of some, some kind. And that only works if the politics of the country works. And I wanted to be part of that change. I actually made a joke when, when I was driving down for my first day of work from Pretoria, moving back to, to Durban. We drove through the Midlands area and the, the person I was driving with, my partner, I said, you know what, uh, one day I'll be the mayor of here. Uh, just joking. It wasn't a, a serious vision at the time. Uh, and we laughed and we carried on. And he reminded me of that story when we're, when we're moving back here again. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's where it came from. I think also there's, there was also... When I, when I first went into politics at, uh, on the Student Representative Council, I didn't know much about politics. My parents are farmers out in the Midlands. I'm the first politician in my family in the country. So this is new for me as well. I get grilled by my family all the time. But um, I got into a position where I could actually change people's lives. Um, you know, from the simplest thing, I, you know, I worked to extend bus routes for students, made sure that the library was open longer so that students could study and didn't have to go back and sit in the dark, extending Wi-Fi coverage. And you realize that if, if you use a position of power uh, or influence for what it is meant for, then you can actually affect change in, in people's lives. And I think that is where people have lost, lost faith in politics, is that so many people who sit in positions such as mine, whether on purpose or just through, through lack of capacity or nefarious motives, have degraded the system to a point where people don't no longer have faith in it. And that's one of the things I want to do is rebuild faith in the political institution and the system of democracy, that your vote can bring change. A lot of what you've said, everybody would agree with, but it's, it's also would be viewed as idealistic. And yet you took the idealism and you turned it into practical reality. What is the strategy? Or how did you actually make it happen? So, so there was a motto that I got my team to adopt during the election, and that was, we're not doing this for status, we're doing this for sacrifice. So there was always a belief that win or lose, this is not about us. It's not about the Chris, the mayor, or you know, XYZ, the councillor, or the fact that the DA is now in government. It wasn't about that. It was about the fact that we would control levers that could change people's lives, because there's there's this belief that all politicians are the same as the president or we all, we're all the same as uh, you know, the movie stars that we see. Some guy comes in a black car, gets out, waves a wand and everything's changed. But in actual fact, in many communities, the councillors and mayors and people like that are, are members of the community. We want to see things work. I can promise you it's much easier to fix the potholes than have to explain to people why the potholes aren't fixed, those sorts of things. But deep down, I'm, I'm a hopeless idealist. But I'm also a pragmatist and a realist as well to know that this is the dream. But to get as close as possible to that, these are the steps that we're going to have to go through. And these are the challenges that we're going to most likely face. And, and you have to build up sort of a mental and, and an emotional 
capacity to deal with with disappointment and the fact that things change so often. So it's not about being a, a hopeless idealist, but making sure that you know how you're going to get there and have a proper plan in place. I like having plans. You mentioned the potholes. It, it sounded a little uh, like the broken windows theory in New York City. Uh, they started at the bottom end, getting the simple stuff right first. Is that part of your strategy? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, we've, forgot, we've forgotten what local government is about. Local government is not about you know, building stadiums and doing all these things that we see in the news that people try and get attention. It's about making sure that the streets are clean, that the street lights work, that the parks are cut, that the potholes are fixed, that there's water in the taps more often than not. Those basic fundamental things that local government is supposed to do. And once you do those right, then you can start to say, okay, what else can we do for our communities that is not within our mandate as local government? And then start to expand. There's a huge lack of understanding of what government does in South Africa and the different spheres of government. So I often get complaints about Home Affairs and SASA and the Social Development Office or, you know, the Road Traffic Inspectorate. And those aren't my responsibility. And it, I'm not popular when I say I'm sorry, but that's, that's not what I do. But slowly people need to learn that you vote for a local government to get, you know, these things right. And once we've done that right, then we can start with other things. Unless we decide in South Africa that we want a different form of government where, like in America, there's more power at a local level. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my biggest job is managing expectations. I suppose I'm the, I'm the expectation manager of Umgeni and uh, making sure that in managing those expectations, there's actually a real plan in the background and that the things are constantly moving. There was something on social media the other day, I think it was Facebook, it was saying, um, even moving slowly is progress in itself. So we will move slowly. There's a lot wrong, but it will be progress and people will see a difference in the type of governments uh, that you can have in South Africa. Were you surprised at the result? Yes and no. Um, I always knew it was going to be close. I, I never thought we'd get a you know, 55 or you know, even 52. I was hoping for like a 50 and a half, 51. You, you don't go from, from 41% suddenly to 51, 52%. But we worked hard. We worked hard. We, we, it, didn't, it wasn't something that started when the Constitutional Court said that there must be elections. Uh, since 2019, we've been working at this particular election campaign, listening to voters. You know, people criticize political parties for a number of things, but it was incumbent on us to say, well, let's actually change those things. Are we communicating with voters in between elections? Are we visiting people in their homes? Are we building trust amongst communities who have never voted the for the Democratic Alliance before? So we listened and we tried to respond as best as we could from a long time. Um, and I think what we did helped because we, we, we saw a 7% increase in our vote, which in terms of the DA's results in KZN was by far the biggest increase in, in the province, uh, you know, by, by like 5 or 6%, uh, everywhere incre increased marginally. So we did something right, and we just stuck to our guns. And like I said, our motto was we're doing this for sacrifice, not status. And to continuously hammer that on with our teams, even with our own activists and volunteers, it helps to build a strong foundation when you get into government. Because now I don't owe any politician anything. I didn't promise our volunteers, you know, get behind us and you'll get a job. People knew why we we're doing this. The only thing that we owe people now is good governance and progress. Well, thank you for being with us this Wednesday, the 12th of January. We'll be back again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.